Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. You know, who'd have thought that there would be a gathering like this in Macomb, Mississippi? I mean, really. We get the pleasure of going all over the place, but Macomb, Mississippi was never on the radar. My name is Larry and I am an alcoholic. And I'm free tonight. When I tell you that I'm free, it means that I've recovered. The book tells me that 37 times. Because if I'd have walked in the door and you said, you can come in here and just be recovering, I said, no. I'm good. Because if somebody were to walk up to me with a 38 special and shoot me in the foot, I got a couple of choices. I can go over here to the, to the front desk and get some methylate and a band-aid and wish for the best. Or ask my buddy Rick to put me in that hot rod car of his and take me over to the local hospital, have the bullet taken out, do some minor surgery, put me on some antibiotics and let me recover. And that's what this ride is about for me. Can't thank the, the host and this committee. My friend James back in the back. I met James, we are arguing about it, 10 or 12 years ago in, in California. And um, the world got real small upon meeting him. We did a book study up at Calvary Church last year in New York City, and his sister was one of our main hosts. And if you ever get the chance to meet Wendell, She's a black belt Elanon. I will just tell you right now, when you meet her, you turn your will and your life over to her care. <laughs> and there is no damn decisions from that point on. I'm going to tell you a little story in a few minutes. And I'm going to preface it with this. Coming to Macomb, Mississippi was not a knee-jerk yes for me. And every time I get an invitation, if the calendar's open, I always say yes, because that's the way I was brung up. But there was an event that happened here some years ago, and the Creator saw fit to spare me. And we're going to unfold that. So when James contacted me about coming here, I said, James, I'm going to have to get back with you on that. And I contacted the men that I trust, my sponsor and my, my travel companion, Charlie Yao from Savannah. And I took the guidance and I contacted my, my creator and I like to call him the great mystery. Because it, had it been my choice, I wouldn't be here tonight. This isn't where I wanted to be, but that's going to unfold in a few minutes. You know, I poked around looking into this area before I came. Cause he piqued my interest. He said, y'all like to eat good southern food. And I'm thinking I might get into a good mess of fish over here. I love seafood. I read this story about these two drunks. I don't know if they were alcoholic or not, but they were fishing in a local farm pond around here. There's a lot of water in this area. We came over a 27-mile bridge to get here. 27 miles. Y'all like like that's everywhere. We ain't got 27-mile bridges in Atlanta. Anyway, these two old drunks was out fishing in this farm pond, and one of them got hung up on something. And he kept jerking and pulling and pulling and jerking, and his buddy Tom says, Well, Bob, what do you got, son? He said, Well, I don't know. 
he jerked a couple more times, and this old lamp come up off the bottom of that pond, and he got it in the boat, and he brushed all the mud off of it, and about that time, this genie popped out. He said, man, I can't thank you enough for dragging me up off the bottom of this pond. I've been down there for 2,000 years. And for giving me a hand, I'm going to grant you a wish. Bob said, really? He said, yep, anything you want. Old Bob scratched his head and thought about it a minute, and he says, well, he's going to turn this whole pond into beer. <laughs> Jenny said, really, Bob? And he said, yes, sir, just go ahead and turn the whole thing into beer. Poof! Whole pond turned into Budweiser. Old Tom's sitting up in the front of the boat. He said, way to go, Bob. Now we got to pee in the boat. <laughs> Kind of like that old drunk that was walking down down the beach and tripped over the lantern, and Jeannie popped out and said, I'm going to grant you two wishes. He said, yeah. He says, well, i tell you what. He says, I want me a bottle that never empties. I want a bottle of whiskey, red dog liquor that just never goes empty. And Jeannie said, all right, fine. Poof. He got this bottle of liquor, and he looked at it, and it was a good old bottle of Jack Black, and he turned that thing up, gluggity, 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 gluggity. He looked back at it, and it was still full. Jenny says, you satisfied? He said, yep. He says, you got one more wish. What it'll be? Old drunk says, another one just like this. <laughs> All right. It's the day before Mother's Day, May the 12th of 1935. Bill Wilson has ventured into Akron, Ohio, to do a power takeover of a National Rubber Machine Corporation. And had that deal gone the way he was hoping it would have, he'd have been a very wealthy man and, and been set for life. Well, that wasn't the way it happened. The negotiations got sidetracked, and he was stuck in the Mayflower Hotel in downtown Akron, Ohio, with $15 in his pocket and didn't have a way to pay his bill. Bill hadn't had a drink in five and a half months, and all he'd been doing is marching up and down the streets and the alleys and the bar rooms of New York City with a Bible because there was no AA. And he was pounding drunks over the head with that Bible, and nobody was getting sober. And he went back to Silkworth. And he says, Doc, he says, ain't nobody getting sober but me. Silkworth says, you got to quit preaching to them drunks. They won't put up with it, Bill. Tell those people what I told you. Tell them about the obsession of the mind. Tell them what I told you, Bill. Tell them about the allergy of the body. And tell them what, about what you've learned from the Oxford Group movement. So he's passing up and down the the, uh, the lobby of the Mayflower, and if you've seen the movie My Name is Bill W., it's a great movie, but it's got a little drama in it. It's a little Hollywood. Because he picked up the phone and he made one phone call. He didn't make several. He called one Walter Tunks, who put him in touch with Henrietta Cyberling through a turn of events, and, and he got a hold of Dr. Bob Smith, and Dr. Bob Smith showed up at the gatehouse of the Cyberling Mansion. He extracted a promise out of Ann. He says, you t he says, I'm sick, Ann. After 15 minutes, you come in here and knock on that door and get me out of there. Do you promise? She said, I'll do anything, Bob. Just go please talk to this man. He was sick as a dog, shaking and snaking, wanting to puke. Bill looked at him. He says, looks like you could use a drink. Bob got his hopes up because he thought this New York Yankee was about to pour him a slug. What began as a 15-minute dialogue ended up being a five and a half hours. 
wasn't long after that, Dr. Bob wrote in our literature, and you can find it today, that he had never talked to anybody that knew much more about the drinking game than Bill Wilson. See, Ebby had gone to the hospital and taken Bill through the steps in a matter of days, not weeks, not months. It's in our book. And it was just a few days after that that Dr. Bob was out carrying a message with Bill. Enter one Bill Dotson, who never had another drink. You see, this was the program of recovery that is the reason we're here tonight. These are our, these are our ancestors, man. These are the cats that we owe it all to. They didn't do it the way we do it now. Something happened during the 1950s and 60s. And I've got a pretty educated guess. It was probably the onset of the treatment center movement. And what we went from is a program of recovery to a fellowship of sobriety. Talking about our teddy bears and our feelings. I'm sorry. I, I mean, Johnny and I, have we're on the same page. And, and when I read about a 75% success rate in 1955 in the second edition, and I look around at our rooms and I see our young kids dying because people are telling them, just don't drink and go to meetings. My home group is We Are Not a Glum Lot. We're a Joe and Charlie-style book study. We meet every Thursday night at 8 o'clock at Dunwoody United Methodist Church. The women of Alcoholics Anonymous in Atlanta came to my partner and I and asked us if we'd bring the message to women, and we had to, we had to pray about that because I didn't do men's, I didn't do women's meetings. I didn't do co-ed meetings. I strictly went to men's meetings. Because you see, at that point in my life, if you put a woman in the room with me, I got better looking and I sounded a lot snappier. Because, see, I walked in your door as a predator and a womanizer. We prayed about it, and uh, the first night six women showed up, and they were tens, every one of them, sitting on the front row. And I looked over at Christian, my partner, and I said, Dog, I said, we got a problem. We were shuffling papers around, and he looked up, and he says, Oh, my God, we got to pray. And we walked down the hall and prayed. And, and what happened... As we unfold this little story about Larry Scott, the men that have come into my life over the years have taught me how to be a gentle man. I don't look at women as, a, as, as another gender. I look at them as a human being. And that's not of me. Believe me, that ain't of me, because women got what I want, and I'm willing to go to any length to get it. Um, I had my first drink of moonshine whiskey when I was a little boy in a little town called Hazelhurst, Georgia, because that's where I was born. And uh, my older cousin, Billy, gave me a shot of moonshine liquor, and I spit it. And I said, God knows that thing burned to my toenails, and I swore I'd never do it again. Little did I know I would chase that deal for the rest of my life. I'm going to give you the beginning and the end of this tale. Alcohol is my drug of choice, and I did everything in between. All them fortifiers. Look at old Rick over shaking his head. See, if I can do, if, if I can't get there quick enough, I can pop one of them little old pills and I get rocketed to that dimension. And if I get too far out there, I can do a little bit of that powder up my nose and grab my teeth and get right back in the zone, you know, and drink some more liquor. You know what I'm saying, Johnny? <laughs> Not me. And it's really funny, two of our three speakers that have come to this podium have told my story. Because, you see, 
I'd go to Hazelhurst, Georgia in the summertime. We grew up in Jacksonville, and, and I was too little to crop tobacco, so they let me drive the tractors. And I love anything that burns gas, especially high tests, and makes a racket. Well, I was just a little boy, and, and my job during the lunchtime hour when the women folk was in cooking lunch, I, my job was to, to, to take the tractors out to this big 1,000-gallon tank and pump gas into it. There was three of them. There was a Farmall, a Ford, and, a, and, a, and an International Cup. Well, there were no cutoffs on them pumps, and I'd get it lay up on the hood of them things, and I'd be pumping, listen to that gas to come up in the fill neck. And what I discovered is I love gas. <laughs> I love gas. And they would find me passed out on the ground underneath that pecan tree with a big old grin on my face and gas spewing everywhere. Well, I'm a pretty quick study. At the end of the summer, I had to go back to Jacksonville. There's an Amico station about two blocks down the road. I went and got a job. <laughs> I love gas. Pull a tag down them old Cadillacs. They had no automatic cutoffs. I'd be listening for that gas to come up the fill neck. They'd find me passed out in the driveway at the gas station, grinning. I love gas. Turned about 14 years old. There was a bunch of cats that turned me on to sniffing glue. Get a tube of that tester's cement and pop it down in a, a little penny candy sack. Huffing. Well, we all went to jail for huffing glue. The funny thing is, the police arrested us, and they didn't know what to charge us with. <laughs> Nobody had ever heard of it. They just knew we were having way too damn much fun, and they locked our asses up. <laughs> Growing up a little bit, and uh, I got into the uh, entertainment, well, media business. I worked for a radio station in Jacksonville, and one of my accounts was a, was a big club. It was a gutted gro uh, grocery store, and they... They had live entertainment there most of the time, and it was called The Other Place. Well, Wednesday nights, when they'd have a little slump in the business, they have a thing called Sink or Swim. And you walk up to the front door and give them $15 and drink all you could hold every time. Sink or Swim, 15 bucks, all you can hold. I'd stop on the way and buy a pint of Jack Daniels and jacket just to get ready. That's alcoholic, y'all. I'm fixing to go and drink all I can drink. We'll back up just a little bit. I was in junior high school, and a buddy of mine that's still a dear friend of mine, we used to scour the alleys down by back of the uh, retail shops on Main Street, and we'd, we'd find us a great big old, like a quart or a fifth bottle. We'd flip the cap off of it. We wouldn't need that in the morning. And we'd, We'd pick up all these half pints and pint bottles with little leftover, and we'd pour. And we weren't discriminating. We're talking port wine, gin, vodka, bourbon. It didn't matter. And we'd pour all of it into one bottle till we got about that much into that quart. And then we'd flip a coin to see who got to drink it. And whoever that was, a lucky dog. And the next day, the next guy got to do it. And we'd do that. But I love what alcohol does for me. I, I mean. You'll never ever hear me say, oh, I like a good single malt scotch. I like a good box of wine. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I got married young. I'm a child of the 60s, and as I already alluded to, I like everything. I mean, I'm kind of like my buddy Rick out there. What do you got? My second favorite thing is more. I love more. Um, Got, I got divorced uh, five years into this marriage. I had married this girl I grew up with, and there wasn't any love. It was just a good way to get out of that Baptist house and do what I wanted to do the way I wanted to do it. Before I got divorced, I met this gal named Debbie. She she worked for an oral surgeon. 
And y'all could fill in the blanks from there. She had a key to the candy store, see? And when they'd close up at night, we'd go down to the Marshall Taylor building and go in there and they, they had, they had gallon plastic jugs of Seekanol and Seekabarbital and Darbacet and all that stuff. And we just, I loved hanging out with Debbie. And, um, she and I had a lot of fun together. We, 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 we should have never gotten married. We did. Didn't stay married for six months because we like to run together. We like to drink together. We like to do all that dope together and, and fish. Do dope and fish. And, uh, that didn't last too long. I mean, we were wide open. I mean, this is, you're talking about 1972. And there's a, we were up here on this panel today and we were talking about this fourth dimension. And there's a lot of people that will walk around this fellowship and tell you about luck. What a lucky coincidence that was. I choose the word grace. If you look that word up, it'll tell you it's undeserved favor. Jeff Foxworthy said it was unmerited mercy. Thank God I didn't get what I deserved. I was in a little old bar one night out in the west side of Jacksonville, a place called Fling Nasty Saloon. It was a biker bar. I love hanging out in biker bars. And this thing was about as big as from here to that wall and about from here to Diana White. And, man, I love that place. You feed it stick to the floor. We was in there one night, tore up from the floor up, and I met this cat. I'd never seen him before. I hadn't seen him since. And he walked up to me, and he said, Do you like to fly? I said, As a matter of fact, I do. He said, Well, I got this plane out at Hurlong Field. Let's go out there and go for a little ride. It's a cold November night. I don't know this guy. I didn't ask him to see his pilot's license, and we're both drunk. We get out to Hurlong Field. And he says, you wait right here. And it was a grass runway with these uh, planes parked in a row. And often across there was a little trailer house. He got out of the car and he left the motor running because it was cold. And he waved as he went off and I waved. And he went on in that trailer house. Light came on. He came out and he waved and I waved. And he went over and he got in one of them airplanes. Light came on and nothing else happened. He got out of that car or out of that plane and he went back over to the trailer house and he waved and I waved and he came back out and he waved and he got in this other airplane and the light came on and nothing else happened. I'm a pretty quick study. He's going back in that trailer house. I had that alcoholic moment of clarity. I thought to myself, Larry boy, you need to pull the plug on this because this ain't going well. Well, he came back out, and he waved again. He got in that third airplane. The light came on, and all of a sudden, that thing started belching and backfiring and cranked up, and he waved, and I thought, Larry, now is the time. Just go over there and tell him that you have, that you, that, that you have changed your mind, and you don't think this is a good idea. But see, I'm a man. I can't let him see me blank. How bad could it be? <laughs> kind of like in the book, it says, accept spiritual help or die alcoholic death, and you go, hmm. How bad is an alcoholic death? <laughs> so I run over and get in that plane, and he puts a headset on me, and he said, where do you want to go? I said, hell, dude, this is, you know, this is your your deal. 
He says, all right. So he called up the bar, Fling Nasties, and he got them on the phone. And he said, we're going to buzz the bar. And I'm thinking, that's a pretty good idea. Now, this is in a highly congested area. This ain't out in the country. <laughs> Sitting on a four-lane. And we're flying along, and it's not the smoothest ride you've ever taken. So he starts dropping altitude, and he drops down right over the, the, the phone wires and all these drunks and hippies and bikers in the parking lot doing this, and he turns that thing up on one side, and I thought, wow. <laughs> well, just east of there a little ways is the Ortega River. And there's a Timaquana Bridge that goes over it. The Timaquana Bridge has been there a long time, and the opening over the water is not one of these square openings. It's one like a half-moon shape. I'm a pretty quick study. He drops this baby right down over the top of that river, and we're running the length and the breadth of that thing, and I could reach out and touch the water. And I'm not a physicist, but I'm a pretty quick study. I looked at the wings, and I looked up into that bridge, and I'm thinking, even with Vaseline, this ain't going through there. <laughs> and then I had that moment of alcoholic clarity. I reflected back on the same moment sitting in the parking lot of that airport when I should have said, no thanks. <laughs> well, he went under that bridge, and I thought, man, how lucky was that? So it's God's grace. Um, God didn't want me to die that night. I didn't go for another ride with him. Um, went over to a guy's house one day, and, and a, a dope deal had gone bad, and he had a needle in his arm, and I asked him if he had any more, and he said, yeah, back there in the bedroom. Well, I'm a pig, and I've never done that before, so I went back and thought, did what I thought I was supposed to do, and I never got the needle out of my arm, and I'm falling backwards. This man was a young, 25-year-old, healthy, virile, muscled-up guy, and he came into the room and caught me as I'm going down because I overshot the mark yet one more time. And he grabbed me by the armpits and drove me to the sunroom of his house, and he had a, a scuba tank. And instead of having oxygen in, or, or air in that tank, he had oxygen. And instead of having a mouthpiece, he had a mask. I guess he, had, he saw this one coming. And he saved me. Now, I have researched that. And to this day, I can't tell you why, how or why that happened, but I didn't have to die that day. That's a lucky break? No. It's God's grace. There's been so many of those ODs and so many of those brushes with death. I wandered around the planet all my life in the shadow of two self-made millionaires wondering what is my purpose. I, I'm a dope fiend, drop, high school dropout, alcoholic. I mean, I'm just what society has told all of us, that we're just no good, we don't measure up, and we ain't never going to amount to nothing. I'm working for a rock and roll radio station in Jacksonville. We're talking the uh, the 70s, and as you, many of you know, there's a lot of great rock and roll music that came out of that town. And the Leonard Skinner Band were regulars in there, and they were always coming in for interviews, dope, uh, dope signing, <laughs> record signing parties. They got dope on the mind. And um, through a turn of events, I end up going to work with Sir Productions, their, their, their management company, and I'm living with Leon Wilkerson, their bass player.
the Elbum Street survivors had come out. Slated to be their biggest success yet. And they'd run up on this old rattletrap airplane, little conveyor. And everybody knew that was not a good idea. We were real good in, in Silver Eagle buses. We were at an autograph signing party, and I was the band. The 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 the, the days of being on the road with Leonard Skinner were were getting very 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 weary to me. The insanity was was growing. Ironically, Ronnie Van Zant and a couple of the other members had made a decision to shoot for sobriety. An MCA record company executive showed up at the autograph signing party that morning, and I was doing a preliminary interview to make the transition from the Skinner management team over to MCA records. And as I as it unfolded, I got into an argument with the executive, and I did as I always do. To hell with you, I'm not getting on the plane. See why it's so hard for me to be in this town? We got the call that night. The Freebird had fallen into the swamps right up the road here. The casualty list involved four of my best, very best friends. My fishing buddy, Ronnie, was dead. Pun, pun impact. I was supposed to die out there that day. The song that smells about getting sober. That's what that song's about. So when I got the call to come and be with you, I wasn't real doggone sure that I wanted to do this. And then as the great spirit would have it, I, I connected with Diana as she stood at the podium last night. And just prior to Johnny taking me out to, to get some closure today, Diana met me at the table out here, and she says, I don't know why I brought this, but it's very clear to me now. And she reached in her purse and gave me a beautiful hawk feather. Hawk is my totem. Hawk is my spirit animal. It belonged to her father. Since a peace came over me, she said it today from up here. There's a connection, and we don't know what it is, but I guarantee you our paths were to collide in Macomb, Mississippi. When the plane went down, so did my, so did my uh, identity. Because if you'd walked up to me in those days, my name's Larry Scott. I worked for the Leonard Skinner Band because that's who I was. Started another management company with a dear friend of mine that had enough money to burn a wet dog. And we went through every penny of it in two and a half years. Every penny of it. At the end of the two and a half years, we were both homeless. I'd like to tell you I moved to Atlanta in 1980, but I didn't because I was homeless. I ran to Atlanta and, and 
slept in a bedroom of my older brother, who's one of my using buddies, and you'll hear more about him in a minute. Went to work for another record company in Atlanta that we'd had some experience with, and I, at this stage of the game, it's 1980. I'm unemployable. This is June of 1980. Larry, we love you, and you're really good at what you do, but you're never sober, and if you show up at all, you can't come around here like that anymore, Larry. Had the greatest jobs anybody would ever want. The greatest anybody would ever want. And I really meant it. I'll do a great job for you this time. I swear to God, Big Red X on the calendar. Got turned on to a, a, a method of smoking pre-base. And it didn't take but a minute. Skip forward to 1987. The girl that I'd been in and out of a living with for off, off and on for 10 years, she came home from work one day. She still worked for that record company. And she said, Larry, you're dying. I love you, Larry. But you can't do that here. You got to go. And I did what every stand-up man does. I cussed her like a dog. In retrospect, I look back. And she did for me what I would not have done for myself, and she gave me the key to the to, to the to the to that fourth dimension because I had nowhere to go. I'm homeless. I'm sleeping in in abandoned cars and under bridges and in boxes. And every now and then, an acquaintance I had no friends. An acquaintance would allow me to sleep on a day bed or a spare bedroom for that night, but they'd make it very clear, Larry, if we get up to go to work in the morning, you got to go. We're not going to leave you here. My brother that's just older than me had found you. And this is another one of those grace things. He found me in a homeless state. I was staying with an acquaintance, her and her two teenage children in Lawrenceville, Georgia. If you read about Bill, he said he was 40 pounds underweight. He could eat little or nothing. Just And Bill was dying there. Well, I was dying. I was convinced that I had AIDS because I'd, I'd shared needles with everybody and everything. And, I mean, I was convinced of it. I was withering away to nothing. He got me on the phone, and he says, I understand you're in really bad shape. And, Larry, if you don't get help, we're going to bury you. I said, no, bub, I'm good. I got this. But, see, his message to me was much like that of Ebby Thatcher the day that he visited Bill in the kitchen. His message had depth and weight. He had all that money, and I had all them contacts, and we'd run for days. I didn't have to say, Bub, are you an alcoholic? Are you a dope fiend? I knew he was. And it was the grace of a loving, merciful God that he had me on the phone trying to save my life. Bub reached out that day, and he took my hand, and he said, Larry, write down this number. I said, you're going to give me the number of a treatment center, and I'm homeless. I don't have any resources. He's no. Call this number, and there'll be somebody friendly that will help you on the other end. And it was a hotline. I went to my first meeting that night. It was on a Thursday night. A fellow Nick that answered the phone met me there, and I can't tell you who led or who read or anything. And they asked me at the end of the meeting, they said, uh, does the newcomer have anything that he'd like to share? And I said, yeah. I just want to get my wife back. And this woman, she was about 100 years old, said, well, 
honey, you're in the right place. We'll help you do just that. And I'm looking at this woman. I'm thinking, this woman hadn't got a clue. I'm a hope-to-die dope fiend thieving alcoholic. I later found out that she was the program director for one of the largest facilities in Atlanta, and her story made me look like a god pick and altar boy. <laughs> Joni Monson. So we left that night. Somebody's giving me a ride home, and I had a little walking around change, and I said, pull in this liquor store here. I'd made that long walk from the back of the room to the front and picked up that white chip. And I needed a drink. I deserved a drink. I bought two bottles of that rot gut champagne to celebrate that white chip. <laughs> well, it made sense to me. Well, I continued to drink for about 90 days and go to your meetings. I wasn't doing any of that other monkey business. And I'd invite you over after the meeting to let's go and talk about this, have a couple of beers. And y'all looked at me like I had a third eye in my forehead. It's New Year's Eve, 1987, and this woman that had allowed me to stay in her home with these two teenage children was in the kitchen, and she was cooking black-eyed peas and collard greens for New Year's Day lunch. There was a stock pot that was probably three gallons, and it was rolling, boiling water with them collards, and she was over at the sink cutting them up and putting them in that pot. And what I'm sharing with you is pretty much hearsay because I'm in a blackout. I'd started drinking early that morning. Because you see, the disease of alcoholism had progressed to a state that I couldn't not drink. I had to drink if I wanted to live. And it's not an excuse. It's just a fact. I walked over and I picked up that large pot of boiling collard greens and I dumped it on her arms in that sink. took off that belt with that big western belt buckle on it and I wrapped it around my hand and I went to the old lady's house and I just destroyed her stuff. Lamps and TVs and stereo. January 1st, 1988, I came to. I'm homeless again. I woke up to the horror and remorse the insanity of that of that drink. And I called you and you came and got me. God intervened. I had the desperation of a drowning man. This gal that had been one of my dope fiend buddies allowed me to stay on her daybed for one night. And this daybed is where animals slept and it was covered with hair and the smell of urine and, and feces and dirt. And this old biker back a few months earlier had given me some guidelines about taking the third step prayer. And I read about it, but that's all I did. And as I laid down on that day bed, I, I recollected that third step prayer and I thought to myself, is this all there is? An animal bed. I rolled out on my knees and I recited that prayer to the best of my memory. And you took up my slack. You see, when I got here this time, there was no middle-of-the-road solution. 
I was willing to do whatever you whatever you told me to do because I couldn't if I wanted to live you were my key to the future everything I was doing was 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 futile to that point so I got this old hardcore sponsor and I said Bill he laid out the steps I said Bill what do I do when I get done with these 12 steps he said Larry you lay real still because you're dead. <laughs> I started hooking up with my brother's AA meeting over in the west side of Atlanta. And it's jam-packed with a, with a species in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a mean, mean breed. They're called the old-timer. They were everywhere. They were lurking. And when I'd come in, boy, it was new me. And they'd just seize you. I'd go over to the meeting. Y'all told me I need to get there early and stay late and help set up, put out the ashtrays, and I'm going, yeah, whatever, I'm, I'm in. And old, old uh, Bob Knapp, Bob sounded like a Baptist preacher. He'd been there putting out chairs and ashtrays, making the coffee and the brochures and all that business. And I'd, I was selling cars for my brother-in-law. Do not suggest that to the newcomer. <laughs> but it was a job. I had to be self-supporting. My sponsor made me do it. So I'd come dragging in there. I ain't selling many cars, and I'm on a draw against commission. And Bob be over there, and he says, "Hey, Larry, how you doing?" Oh, Bob, it's been a bad day. Them old mean sales managers talk down to me all day, and I'm in the hole. I owe them people three hundred dollars just for working there. <laughs> Bob, he ain't blinked. He said, "Well, buddy, you right on schedule. You're exactly where you're supposed to be." <laughs> I looked around. I'm thinking Bob got a hearing aid. Because he dang sure ain't hearing anything I said. We were sitting in that old squared off circle one night, and there was a cat in there named Jack Blaylock. Jack crossed over to the other side now. He was a fellow from Alabama. And it got around to me, and they said, Larry, do you have anything you'd like to share? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. My day went off right into the ditch about 10 o'clock this morning. I got it. I went to the, to the customer lounge to pull down some paper towel, put them on the floor, grab the sink, and I... Started my day over because you told me I could just turn it over. And I said, boy, my day is great now. Old Jack said, yeah, buddy. Jack would smoke these luckies down to a roach. <laughs> Jack said, yeah, buddy. He says, that turn it over some good stuff. He said, back when I lived in Alabama, I used to write them bad checks. He said, I turned them over to God. He said, God turned them over to the sheriff, and they locked my ass up. <laughs> Old-timers. <laughs> One morning I woke up, you told me, I'm, see, I was raised Baptist, and you told me I had to pray on my knees. It was impossible not to be humble if you're on your knees. If I go over, just slap me. Don't. Okay. <laughs> um, and Baptists don't pray on their knees. But I'm willing to do whatever you told me. So I got up one morning and I was praying and I realized all my words were coming from my lips and not from my heart. There was no meaning to them and I felt bad about it. I didn't have that connection and I called everybody. Back in the day, you had these old accordion phone lists. had about 200 names on it. I called them all starting with that old mean sponsor. I couldn't get nobody. And I got this woman, her name is Jean Graves. Jean was a one-armed woman, tall, very statuesque, about 80 years old, hair always up in a bun, came from old Atlanta money, wore silks and satins and dangly jewelry. 
all the meetings, and, and she was very southern. Everybody was darling. So I called, and she says, hello? I said, Jean, it's Larry. She says, hello, darling. I said, Jean, I got this problem with my prayers. I got up this morning, and, and as I prayed, all my prayers were coming from my lips and not from my heart, and I just don't feel connected, Jean. There's this long pause. She comes back, and she says, well, darling, pray about it. about that time my, my sponsor got a better job and he moved out, out of state and it made me mad hurt my feelings broke my heart I felt like he had abandoned me and I justified getting the stupidest sponsor you've ever met in your life and for the next year we made the horrible decisions this guy's name was Larry Scott <laughs> Then I walked into a meeting one night, and there was this cat in there telling his story. Because you had told me that on this path, I was going to meet that man that I could share it all with. It was going to be that man. And I hadn't obviously met him. I met these cats that had strung me along this path. And I'm coming up on, um, I had a little bit of time, a couple of three years. and His name was Bill. And when I met this guy, five minutes into his talk, I, his heart and mind just collided. There's a pamphlet, um, and if you if you don't have it, I, I strongly urge you get it. It's free on the racks. It's called A Member's Eye View of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's a transcript of a talk given by a cat named Alan McGinnis. Somewhere, depending on the printing around page 10 or 11, Alan says this, and this is this is what I feel is a sponsor. He says, I'm personally convinced that the basic search of every human being from the cradle to the grave is to find at least one other human being before whom he can stand completely naked, stripped of all pretense or defense, and trust that person not to hurt him. Because you see, this lifelong search, has it can begin to end with your very first AA encounter. My guy knows it all. I'm never scared to pick up the phone and call Bob. He's a scary cat, but I'm not scared to call him anymore because he's bared his soul to me. He's never shamed me. He's never blamed me. He's never gotten angry with me. He gives me clear-cut direction on how to get through whatever life throws at me. Our relationship is built on prayer. We pray on the phone. I love Bob. Through this relationship with this man, he turned me on to the men. We, he said, you know, there's a, there's a workshop down in central Georgia called The Rock. And we want you to come and, and be there with us. And I said, I've heard about that. It's 300 men out in the woods for three days. I don't believe that's for me. <laughs> he says, well, you'll either be there or you'll find another sponsor. I said, what were those dates again? <laughs> So I started going to men's gatherings all over the country. Uh, I'm going to be at one in California here in October. I love, I've learned to love the men of AA because I can't get over on them. The game, I mean, game up. Uh, 
I went to an old meeting that I came up in, and I went there for one reason. It was for fellowship and to see some of them old cats that I'd come up with and hadn't seen them in a long time. And I walked in, and it was a discussion meeting. There was a lot of treatment center people there. And all they talked about was the book, the book, the book, the book, the damn book. And I thought, boy, they're a little excessive on this book thing. (laughs) Everybody that raised their hand, it was the book. So I went to my buddy Dante, and I said, brother, Y'all a little heavy-handed on the book. He said, Larry, has anybody ever taken you through the book, Joe and Charlie style? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, they haven't. He says, be over at Rob's house Wednesday night. We're going to do it. Actually, it was upstairs in that church. I showed up, and they opened the book to the the chapter to wives. Thank God I'm a respectful man because I almost left. I didn't have a wife, didn't want a wife, didn't need a wife. That chapter did not pertain to me, but I sat there out of courtesy. And they unfolded that chapter in a fashion that I'd never, ever witnessed before. And I went, wow. And they said, tomorrow night over at Rob's house, there's going to be some cat, some guys over there. Come on over. So I went over, and they opened the book to Bill's story. And I'm going to share you, with my, share you my experience with that night because it changed, it revolutioned my, revolutionized my life to this day. It was a condo, and the room was about 25 feet long, and it was about, 13, 14 feet wide. I was sitting in the back. There were 16 chairs. There were two cats sitting at a little old coffee table or something up in the front. And I knew most of these guys. And before they, before they started reading the chapter, they started, they told us about how Bill was, how he grew up, how he's abandoned by the mom and dad and came from a family riddled with alcoholism and how he was an overachiever and how he did all these things. And, and they told about his success on Wall Street and how it all came crumbling down. They told about his loving wife and relationship with Lois. So I had a pretty clear cut idea of who this cat really was. More so than just the black on these pages. They had done their work. Joe and Charlie had taught these guys. So they, they start reading, and there was an empty chair about six or seven feet off from right here. And all of a sudden, I looked over, and Bill Wilson was sitting in that chair. He started nodding his head. He was breathing. They brought him to life. They gave him a personality. They gave him a pulse. And I went, oh, my God. I couldn't wait to get to a phone. I called my boy, Art Southern. I said, brother, we've been looking for this book deal for a while, and I have tapped into it. And I asked these guys if they would share this information with me. They gave us six months of their life every Tuesday night, me and my sponsor family and two or three tiers down, and we would meet at a treatment center in Atlanta. And they took us through this book, Joe and Charlie style. And at the end of it, I said, fellas, we really appreciate your sacrifice and your time and your knowledge and what you've given us for the last six months. Well, Rob looked at me and he said, that ain't the way this deal ends, dude. I said, what do you mean? He says, you've got the information. You made all the notes and the margins and blah, blah, blah. You've got to yet carry this to other people. And I said, I'll get around to that. This is on a Tuesday night. Well, Thursday, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Rob called me. He says, I've been carrying the message in the book study over at the Triangle Room for a few years, and I can't be there tonight, and I need you to do it. And I said, yeah, but. And he went. And I showed up. We opened the book. No blood was drawn. 
Nobody died. And then the guy that runs the treatment center where we had been called me and said, would you bring this message to the men in our facility? And I said, you betcha. Eighteen years. There's not been a week go by that God hasn't given me a place and an audience to share this book information. Our meeting that the Joe and Charlie style, we are not a glum lot. There's 225 to 250 people there every Thursday night. Every Thursday night. And there's, it's not a discussion. The book says something about the practice and teaching. And they just keep coming and I'm going, where are y'all coming from? Because you see there's pockets of enthusiasm all over the world of people that are starved to death for the solution to this fatal disease that are, that's killing us all. In January, my partner of nine years, he's still with me on Thursday nights. He got married, his life changed, and he met with me in January. We are booked out all the way through next year. And we were going to go from, we were, we were changing the method with which we were carrying the message on the road. And he showed up at my house and he says, Larry, I can't do this anymore. He says, I've got a, I've, I, I'm married. And I started crying, scared me to death. What am I going to do? What am I going to do about all these dates? What are these people going to think of me? Meh. <laughs> <laughs> so he left and I did what I've been taught, what you told me to do. I prayed and I called my sponsor. A little piece of this that I left out. Charlie Parmalee showed up in our book study one night just out of the blue. And if you don't think that's a tough deal, get up on the stage and start singing, I can't get no satisfaction and have Mick Jagger walk in the back door. <laughs> Charlie came up to me after the meeting and he said, you boys did a fine job. He said, Joe's smiling in his grave tonight because our prayer was that somebody would pick up this torch and carry it. Man, what huge, what huge shoes. If you're in AA, everybody's heard of Joe and Charlie. Well, there's a Charlie Yow. He lives in Savannah, Georgia. Charlie knows this book. He's a past archivist for the state of Georgia. He has a passion for this thing. I called him and I said, Charlie, would you join me? And he said, Larry, boy, he says, I'm honored. He came to Atlanta and we sat for a day and we went through the information and we showed up in Scottsdale, Arizona. God intervened. Because see, all we are is just a couple of guys that y'all can look at because all this is God's stuff. This is God's business. It was Me and Rick were talking earlier today. Bill Wilson didn't write that book. He held the pen. He was a sorry, no good, egotistical maniac. I challenge anybody in this room, I challenge anybody in this world to do a work of art like this with four years under your belt. Come on. Bill Wilson had, he didn't have it. So God has, has intervened. Charlie's my boy. Charlie Parmley, God rest his soul. Charlie slipped over a couple of months ago and I called him, I wasn't a couple of months ago, I called him from Scottsdale because I wanted to know if Joe McCoy was still alive. And he said, yeah, Joe's alive over in my life. And so when I called him about changing partners, I said, Charlie, 
my boy has just resigned what I do. And if any of you knew Charlie Parmalee, he was the epitome of keep it simple. I said, Charlie, I don't know what I'm going to do. When when Joe, Joe McQueenie got sick, what would you do? He said, Larry, you got to adjust. <laughs> so, Charlie, would you care to expound on that a little bit? So he spent two hours with me on the phone and many other conversations, and he gave me clear-cut direction of what he and Joe McCoy did. As they, And when Joe McCoy came along, it was completely seamless. Completely seamless. How many of you people remember the very first AA meeting or NA or CA meeting you ever walked in? Let me just see your hands. The first one that you remember. Okay. All of us have sat in them chairs for the first time. And there's these little kids, these little snot-nosed, dope-fiend alcoholics coming in on the druggy buggies. Mama's dropping them off, or the wife's dropping them off, or the husband's dropping them off, and they're walking in our doors for the first time, just like we did. And walk with me for a minute. It's that night or that day that you're going to your first meeting, and you're in the parking lot, and you see the door, and you see them yahoos out there smoking cigarettes, and you're thinking, what's this going to be like? I didn't know if I was going to have to handle snakes or do a bake sale. I didn't know. I'm Baptist. But you can bet your butt on one thing. When I was in that parking lot, I had some contempt and and jacked up prejudice about what was going to go on. Those people are still walking in our doors and they have the same fears and same contempt and same prejudice. And here's what's happening. They're walking in and people are saying, welcome, grab some coffee. And just don't drink and go to meetings. And if your butt falls off, just stick her in a wheelbarrow and bring her on back up here tomorrow night. Just say no. Nancy Reagan and her band of little gypsies. (laughs) Just don't drink or use no matter what. Really. This is the message we're giving our new people. If you're in this room tonight, I don't care if you've got two hours, two years, or 25 years. You're armed with the information that has kept you sober for that piece of time. And it's your duty, it's your charge to share that solution. The same as you would with someone that was dying from from AIDS or or, or cancer. We've got the solution to alcoholism. I was at a at a meeting in, in, in a little podunk town in Florida back a while back. The discussion leader says, does anybody have anything they'd like to share? This woman says, you know, I went to the Chili's yesterday up in Tallahassee. I ordered a salad. You wouldn't believe how many cucumbers was on that salad. <laughs> they need straight jackets in these places and handcuffs for guys like me. <laughs> and I said, really? Cucumbers? <laughs> you got this little kid over there just came in. He's yipping coffee all over the place and she's talking about cucumbers. 
You hear it in these meetings. Y'all hear it in whatever town you're in. These damn kids of mine, their grades has dropped off. And me and the wife's fighting. Really? Yeah. Mowing the grass yesterday and the lawnmower blew up. Come out of Walmart, somebody run one of them damn buggies in the side of my car. Really? What happened to the solution to alcoholism? Folks, we're killing our young. We might as well be a bunch of damn wild animals and eat our babies, because that's what we're doing. We're killing them. And if you stood at this podium in a, in a church or in a funeral home and you've looked into an open casket of somebody that had the same shot you got, you'll understand my passion. I'm sick and tired of burying them. Just don't drink or use no matter what. What the hell does that mean? Went over to, I had the, the privilege of speaking at a, at a birthday anniversary in uh, a little town in South Carolina. And the girl that I was speaking for, she took me over to show me the eagles on the Waterree River. And on that trip, and she's a dear friend, I met her when she was in treatment. And on that little trip to the river, she said, did you hear about so-and-so? And I knew this was not going to be good. And this some, this so-and-so she's talking about is the woman and, and her husband whose house I'm staying in that happened to be dear friends of mine. And I said, could I ask you a couple of things before we unfold this? And she said, yeah. I said, does this story have anything to do with me? No. I said, is there anything good that's going to come out of this? No. I said, is there anything I can do about this? She said, no. I said, let's not talk about that. You see this first side of the triangle right here, unity? Make no mistake. That's the one thing that we have to have. We've got to be unified on the re on recovery from alcoholism. There ain't a person in here that walked in here happy and well-adjusted. We're a bunch of sick people, and most of us, you know, from up here, y'all could have been dead. I know I could have been. But we're going to talk about each other. Really. We're a bunch of sick people going to talk about sick people. I brought a piece here that I want to share with you. Kind of take the heat off of me. <laughs> Bill Wilson, the letter he wrote in 1966. An AA group as such cannot take all the personal problems of its members, let alone those of non-alcoholics in the world around us. The AA group is not, for example, a mediator of domestic relations, nor does it furnish personal financial aid to anyone. Though a member may sometimes be helped by such matters by his friends in AA, the primary responsibility for the solutions of all his problems of living and growing rests squarely upon the individual himself. Should an AA group attempt this sort of help, its effectiveness and energies would hopeless, hopelessly be dissipated. This is why sobriety, freedom from alcohol through the teaching and practice of AA's 12 steps is the sole purpose of the group. Did you hear that? Here's the teeth to this. 
If we don't stick to this cardinal principle, we shall almost certainly collapse. And if we collapse, we cannot help anyone. He reiterated that in a later issue of the grapevine. He said, if AA ever crumbles, it'll be at the hand of the fellowship. Because you see, this is perfect. This is flawless. This is flawed. This is flawed. I know, I'm a knucklehead. I get it. And then you got these guys talking about, let me, let me tell you how I see it. Let me tell you my interpretation. <laughs> Dr. Bob Smith wrote in the grapevine, and, and, and he also had this in his book, uh, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. He says, he said, Dr. Bob did elaborate on his Keep It Simple theme as far as the AA program is concerned. Incidentally, in a September 48 article in the grapevine, he wrote, as finally expressed and offered by the 12 steps are simple in language, plain in meaning, They are also workable by any person having a sincere desire to obtain and keep sobriety. The results are living proofs. Their simplicity and workability are such that no special interpretation and certainly no reservations have ever been necessary. It has become increasingly clear that the degree of harmonious living which we achieve is in direct relation to our earnest desire to attempt to follow them literally under divine guidance to the best of our ability. Those are our founders. I told my sponsor, I said, let me tell you the way I interpret this. He said, Larry, they don't need your interpreting, they need your doing. Because see, he knew I was a knucklehead, he saw me coming. We talked about these pockets of enthusiasm all over the world, and they're all over the world. We were... We walked into a conference in, in Reykjavik, Iceland last year, and I walked into an absolute room full of zebras. I mean, these cats are on fire over there. And they are being taken, shots are being taken at them in, in Sweden, in Germany, in, in Norway, in, uh, and in Iceland. And the, the, these, these pockets of thumpers like me and my boy here, they, they've got what they call dark tunnel meetings. Yeah, it's almost like the Protestants and the Catholics. God forbid that ever happens to us. There are two kinds of people that come into our rooms, and we're in this room tonight. You got your players. These are the cats that stand at the podium and put up these decorations, put out the chairs, make the coffee, do all this stuff to make this weekend happen. And, and they're the cats that put out the ashtrays and the, and the literature and give rise to those little pukes to the meetings. Those are the players. And then the fans show up. They sit in the chairs, they take the coffee, they spill it on the rug, they steal the books, they take the rides. And it was posed to me by a, by an old-timer once. He says, Larry, what's your choice going to be? You want to be a player or a fan? Whew. That's a pretty quick answer right there. I can't give enough because there's a there's a paradox in here. The more you give, the more you get, and I'll never repay the debt. I'll never repay the debt. AA is a lot of fun. It's it's an incredible journey. Um, in 2001, the man that gave me this book that put my hand into yours, his name was Talmadge. I call him Bub. He was in a relationship with another man very successfully and happy for 37 years and on 
In 2001, his partner Don called and said, Larry, your brother's had a stroke and you need to come now. He lived about 80 miles from me. And I went to Tanner Medical Center in, in, in Carrollton, Georgia. You know what happened? When I got there, you were there. You held me. You held my family. You prayed with us. When the decision was made that he wouldn't, we had promised him that if he ever got in the state that, that we'd help him to cross over. And we, and when that day came to make that decision, you know what? You were there. You held us and you prayed with us. A couple of days later, we went out to the graveside and guess what? Y'all were there. And you held us. And you prayed with us. You brought that southern fried chicken. That's what we do at funerals down here. 2006, uh, heart disease runs rampant on the male side of my family, and I don't want to die because I've been given this rocket ride that my friend Diane talks about. And I don't want to, I ain't ready to check out. I've already outlived most of the male men, the, the, the male men. <laughs> Pete, it wasn't that funny. The, the men, the men in my family, and and what I've done is taken a proactive stance, and I'm laying in the heart, uh, the cath lab at Piedmont Hospital, and on February the 14th of 2006, and the doctor was a buddy of mine, Scott Anderson, and they had my heart in high definition, but they had jacked me up on that good stuff. You know, they put a catheter in your leg, and they shave all your junk down there. And they squirt that dye up in there, and they had my heart up on the high definition screen, and Scott said, you see that black dot right there? I said, I do. He says, that's a blockage. I said, really? He says, what do you think we ought to do? I said, Doc, come on. This is your job. What do you think we ought to do? He said, I think we need to do a bypass. Well, see, I, I'm a pretty quick study. I'm thinking they'll put something up in that hole in my crotch, and it'll all be over with. Well, I said, let's go for it. Well, they prepped me for the next two days and split my chest open. And played with my heart. And they did a bypass. When the word got out to you, that was what was happening. The nurses were throwing you off of the damn floor because y'all just absolutely inundated the hospital. You brought meetings and prayer meetings and the yeehaws and the ha-has and, and you held me. And you prayed with me and you held my family in those dark moments and I didn't know it, but I died in there because I hemorrhaged. Obviously, <laughs> didn't brought me back. And when I got out, you were there. You were at my house. You were picking me up and making me ride in the back seat away from my airbags and you were taking me to meetings. You never, you've never, since the day I turned my will and my life over to, over the care of, of a God of my understanding, you've never left me. You've always walked right beside me through hell. I love the eleventh step. I'm a prayer, I'm a seeker. And I've, I've sought high and low. I've, I've talked with men and women from all walks of faith and I alluded to it today. I, 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 I am a, Native American Red Road Path spiritual guy. 
but I, I, for, for the last 19 years, I pray with a group of men every Thursday night at 7.30 before our meeting, and we get in a prayer circle at this church. Theron's one of those guys. Theron's traveled with me this weekend. He's my main guy. And when I, when I pray, I get four answers, one of four. And the first answer is yes. I love that answer. And then I get no. And then there's one I hate. And that one is not, not right now. Cause I hate waiting. I want what I want and I want it right now. And that fourth answer I get is, I can't believe you prayed that shit. <laughs> and wrapping this up, I was, uh, on this conference we were at over in, over in Reykjavik. I, I did an 11 step workshop on Saturday afternoon and this huge guy named Jan, he was from Akure, north of Reykjavik, a huge mountain of a guy. He came up and he says, I'm staying in the hotel with you. Me, my wife and I, could I come to your room and pray it in the morning? I said, yeah, that'd be good. Yawn. So at 8 o'clock, I let him in. I explained to him what we were going to do, and I grabbed his hands, and I read, and then I prayed, and I squeezed his hands for him to commence praying. Well, he, got, he speaks real broken English, and I speak, speak real broken Icelandic. So he... He starts praying, and about 10 seconds into it, he starts jerking me all over the place, and I looked at him, I said, what? He says, I must meet God in my tongue. And he started praying in Icelandic, and it completely blew me away. I could feel the tears running off my beard. I'm in the presence of a man with the God of his understanding, and they've connected. I have no idea what he was praying to, I have no idea what he was saying. But I can tell you this, based on what I know about Jan today, God has manifested in every step of that man's life. And I have that pleasure and that privilege of praying with guys and gals all over the place that, that pray to different, the, the gods of their understanding. And it's a cool deal. Can you imagine a Baptist praying, holding hands with guys, really? Um... In Native American tongue, the word is wado. Thank you. And the last word is mitakue huyasin. We are all one. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.